0: Welcome to Digital Health Talks. Each week, we meet with the healthcare leaders making a measurable difference in equity, access, and quality. Hear about what tech is worth investing in and what isn't as we focus on the innovations that deliver. Join me, Megan Antonelli, and my friend, Shahid Shah, for our weekly No BS Deep Dives into what's really making an impact in healthcare. Very excited to have this group of panelists together. We, you know, I think everybody's heard a lot about Chat GPT lately, but of course AI, machine learning, all that, you know, has been around for a long time in healthcare. So I have Divya, who I had the pleasure of meeting in December, as well as Elise. And Ron, I think we met also at the digital medicine conference in December, so.
1: You were very busy in December.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And it feels like it was only yesterday, but here we are. So, Mm. but I'll let you guys introduce yourselves and sort of talk a little bit about the work that you do and get us kicked off.
2: Okay. Right, my name is Divya Patak. It's a pleasure to be here. Megan. I'm the Vice Chair for AI Innovation and Enablement in the Center for Digital Health at Mayo Clinic. Primarily focused on looking at AI-based innovation in applying it in the clinical business and technical problems that we open.
3: You could have introduced yourself for a lot longer than so that was, <laughs> our was like, That's okay. <laughs> Um, Elise Koch grant executive advisor at AWS, and I was a former CIO of the behavioral health system in New York. A lot of people don't know what like an executive health advisor is, so I help our international customers get ready to onboard to the cloud and help them navigate through their compliance and regulatory concerns.
1: Wonderful. So I'm Ron Rasmi. I am a venture capital investor. So on the dark side, and by way of background, I'm a cardiologist who years developing digital health solutions. I was previously CEO of Acupera for six years. And now our current venture firm, we invest solely on digital health and AI in healthcare solutions. So we have a $300 million fund that we're investing out of right now and a second $700 million fund that's being stood up as we speak and it's entirely focused on digital health and AI and healthcare.
0: Awesome, well, it's a pleasure to have you all here today. Divya, let's start with you, cause you know, Mayo's a big organization doing a lot in this space. You know, I think John Polanco was yeah. you keynote here at our last the, 2019. Yeah, yeah. yeah, tell us a little bit about, you know, as we, we talked, we call this hyper hysteria. Tell us, you know, what is the reality of it? What, what are you guys really working on?
2: Right. Thank you for that question, Megan. Let lets <laughs> me speak about what we do, right? Mayo is, as you all know, it's, uh, you know, it's it's an number one organization when it comes to patient care. And the foray into digital health and AI really started with our CEO, Dr. John Rico Saruja, who was a gastroenterologist by the time. Um, not a
1: cardiologist, it's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> That's true.
2: So he's a clinician researcher and he's a very visionary leader who really wanted Mayo to be the national leader when it comes to digital health and AI. And really to have a strategy called BOLD Forward in terms of cure, connect and transform. And with his him taking the role of the CEO and COVID, that just reinvented everything when it comes to healthcare. There's been big investments made in Mayo Clinic in several fronts. One of the most prominent ones that you here in the press is the Mayo Clinic platform, which is a business entity as part of the nonprofit organization, really looking at how do we discover and deliver AI-based innovation to external partners working in in the healthcare ecosystem. The second big investment that Mayo Clinic made was in the Center for Digital Health. Mayo hired the first Chief Digital Officer, Rita Khan. She's leading the digital transformation strategy at Mayo Clinic. And there's no digital health when we don't talk about AI. Mm-hmm. So, AI organization that is that I'm leading now was actually formed within the Center for Digital Health to be this office of excellence to support AI initiatives across different clinical departments at Mayo Clinic. Right. So we talk about specialties. Mayo is trying to actually look at AI-based solutions across all specialties: cardiology, radiology. To be more, cardiology is in that space too. So there are, those are more prominent initiatives that Mayo has established, and my group is supporting all these initiatives in the entirety of the AI lifecycle, not just in the development of algorithms for any clinical problems, but also in translation of AI. So how do we really take AI into the clinical workflow? So there's a lot of research when it comes to that space, building frameworks that risk covers. It's explainable, it's trustworthy. So we can really eliminate the black box of AI. So that's been a focus in my group. And the last but not the least is the education component. I mean, we talk about AI adoption and we still have clinical workforce, which is still under, you know, not everyone is understanding the implications or the use of AI. So being able to educate healthcare professionals, make them literate enough, to use AI, not just in building AI, but also in, in clinical adoption, wide clinical adoption of education is another focus. So broadly in speaking of different terms, there's, there's more internal engagements, mm-hmm. there's more external partnerships, and uh, Mayo wants to be a leader in the space. They've done a good job of me.
0: Being... Yeah, <laughs> great. Or at least, how about you? What's your what's your thoughts on that?
3: So I'm thinking about the title of this panel, Hype Versus Hysteria, and folks are familiar with something called the hype curve. I'm going to like MBA 101, where it <laughs> kind of shows the hype versus how much work we've actually done okay. in terms of leveraging technologies that have built in you know, AI into it. I think that the top right would be the hype and less work. I think we're actually over the, not over, we're definitely in the hype, but I do think that now we're getting into the nitty gritty of work where providers and hospital systems are leveraging AI a little more. Now, we're not fully in the trenches yet because, you know, like Chat GPT, there's a lot of hype around it, which I actually think there should be but I am seeing now hospitals actually implementing these systems and in specific use cases. It's not everywhere, even though it's every, even though we read it everywhere, but we are seeing forward paths that are being taken using AI. And just to kind of like set the record with AWS, where we fall into this is possibly a lot of the vendors that you invest in are leveraging AWS services to build those models. So I wouldn't say, you know, we're not a software platform and here we're selling it to the doctor. We're actually like the infrastructure services that help engineers yep. and coders build
0: that. Mm-hmm. Right.
3: Now, Ron, you just, you're finishing up a book on uh
1: My, yeah, I, I wrote a textbook of AI and healthcare during the pandemic, right which is coming out this year.
0: Great. What's it called again?
1: It's called Making the World a Healthier Place Using Artificial Intelligence.
0: All well, that seems, Wonderful. seems timely. So tell us about that and tell us about, you know, was there anything in the process of doing the research that you learned that you weren't expecting? What are the surprises from
1: Absolutely. It? I mean, and, and we're looking at these companies every day to invest, to decide to invest. I mean, our deal flow is, I mean, I can hire 20 people and we wouldn't have enough manpower. For all the deal flow, we're seeing companies coming to us every day saying, we're solving this problem, we're solving that problem, life sciences, health systems, remote patient management, and so forth. There's a lot going on. What I would say is, in my opinion, the use cases are gonna start with unsexy, low-risk, back-end operational things, where you can improve operations in a hospital, Mm -hmm. you can improve patient experience or communications. However, the heavy-duty clinical use cases, drug discovery, patient management, and so forth, there's a long way to go. Yeah. And there's a long way to go because the state of data is very chaotic. Yeah. When you come and say, look, I have a, I had this last night, was pressing me to look at their company again, company that collects data, using a wearable and helps manage heart failure patients. And they use AI to process some of that data. That's a great example for this discussion. Look, you can collect whatever data you want out in the wild, weight, height, pulse oximetry, you name it. That data has to go back to a care team. It has to make its way into a data, database, where somewhere it's in the vicinity of all the other data, the patient's echocardiogram, labs, last visit and so forth, somebody needs to review not just that data. If you, I mean, Mm -hmm. when I was a practicing cardiologist, if you came to me and you said, look, my weight went up 20 pounds in the last week and my oxygen saturation is down and I'm very tired, you know, all consistent with a heart failure, exacerbation, first thing I had to do was figure out who this person was. Yeah. What is your name? Why are you talking to me? I had to open the record, read through the chart, see what I wrote the last time I saw them. So that whole process still needs to happen. You can collect whatever data you want. So, and a lot of that information is unstructured. So it's not like you can get the data, combine it with EHR data, which, which is all nice and structured, and algorithm figures out what to do and tells patient what to do. This requires a lot of manual work, extra work by the clinician. Right. And if I've noticed anything in the last day here, there's a lot of talk about burnout, staff shortages, So now you layer this on top, good luck with that. (laughs) Develop all the AI you want out there.
2: It's
1: not integrated. Yeah. So this is is where we are now. Yeah. yeah. We have unstructured data. We have fragmented data. And these algorithms have not been taken into clinical trials. And their their impact on patient health and patient um, outcomes hasn't been proven.
3: Yeah. Right. So... so Oh, kind of yeah. I wanted ago. to jump on it. And I like, let's hone in on some specific use cases. The three I'll go, the three that I'm most excited about, and I'll go from least scary to most scary is automating administrative activities, right? Which you talked exactly. about. And actually, health equity. I think there's a way that we can increase access to services through AI. And probably the most scary to people are precision medicine. And so Hmm. let, let me just talk real quick about the automating activities. And you mentioned unstructured data. Data, healthcare data is so messy. It's not like financial data. It's very, it's qualitative data, right? There's a lot of different information out there. I know I come from a behavioral health background. The heart of what happens with the patient is in the case notes. And someone mentioned a good data point here on the stage that the US case notes are three to five times longer than the rest of the world. I had no (laughs) idea, that's really interesting. I'm gonna look that up. But imagine if we could use AI to extract some of that information that we see in the case note to to ICD-10 codes and procedure codes and diagnosis codes so that way we don't have to put it on that provider. I know we had a quality improvement department where one person read Everybody's case note to make sure that it met the standard. And I mean, that's that's just crazy yeah, to yeah. me that you have to read every single case note. So if there's ways we can yeah. automate that, I, I think that's, that's really that exciting. cannot be
1: automated now.
3: There is too yeah. much
1: context.
3: There's like NLP, in history, like a lot models, of no, but
1: NLP, NLP right now in healthcare is terrible. Like yeah, we have, I mean, be- we have yeah, better we sh- NLP now. But it's 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 better, but it's not there because not there a lot bad. of the clinical notes are abbreviations. Like mm-hmm. I, I never wrote a full sentence. I mean, CO, you know, all of those app abbreviations, and there's no standard. Mm-hmm. So NLP sure. can get Is you that your too, 60, 70 percent I mean, there. Are
2: you, do you... Yeah, yeah, I can actually totally relate to. I can give some real world examples of using NLP in administrative and scheduling tasks. Right. I agree with both of you. I think still exists when it comes to personalized and precision medicine. Mm -hmm. Where hype doesn't exist is the use of machine learning and AI-based techniques when it comes to administrative, scheduling, triaging, clinical information processing, of which 70%, actually more than 70% of clinical data is all unstructured, right? That's totally, that, that goes by the definition. So, we have been working on NLP algorithms, not just using the off the shelf commercial ones, mm-hmm. only because of that context you mentioned and the linguistic and the semantic understanding of the data that differs even from one specialty to another specialty. So, what we are trying to do is, and the industry is also evolving so fast that you see all these large language models, which is really the basis for the ChatGPT uh, chatbot. Our group is, and Predominantly, even in the field of NLP healthcare research, what is happening is they're building more frameworks and models that can be adapted, contextualized, depending on the use cases. The use case to read a clinical note for finding out the patient's condition so that they could triage, I mean, they could schedule that patient to the right service line versus the use of clinical use of NLP to look at clinical notes, to identify the labs, the medications, the problems and diagnosis, they're very different use cases. So we know there is no one NLP that fits all, but being able to contextualize NLP based on the use cases, based on the physician or the care coordinators need requires a framework that we're able to build that could actually use as a plug-in and plug-in of NLP algorithms, off the shelf, custom, state of the art, Adapting to that framework to support a variety of those administrative tasks, especially when it comes to unstructured data has been a focus. And yeah. that's something we've been working on.
1: And it's improving. Actually. It's improving. I think one of the things about Chat GPT is an NLP yeah. model underneath it is a, is a step forward. So mm-hmm. it's actually better. It's generative AI, yeah, it's
2: better. Yeah.
1: Better. However, NLP so far has done better in other sectors of the economy than it's done in healthcare. But the foundational models yeah are the transformer models are better. And now they need to be trained for specific, specific use ca- in orthopedics, in cardiology and so exactly. forth. That's where we are now yeah. is the, the foundational NLP models are much better than they were three years ago right. or five yeah. years
0: ago. And so within your organization and you know, in what you guys have observed, like when you have to sort of tie in what we've been talking about all day, I mean, in terms of the clinician and involving yeah. the clinician, When you're looking at these areas where you need it and where you can use it, how involved are they in that process?
2: That's the best part of me being at Mayo Clinic is my day job is to work with physicians, right, to understand not just their problem space, but also use their subject matter expertise in building. And I know that we spoke about it earlier. You know, there's so much technology advancement when it comes to AI and machine learning across industries, right, Not, not just specific to healthcare. But what's more important for healthcare is to have the clinical subject matter expertise involved in building the AI models. And that involvement is, call it as a prerequisite for AI to be adopted. Unless there is practice guidelines, that's every organization, Neo Clinic, Cleveland Clinic, Clinic. New York, Prism, they have, each organization has their own practice guidelines mm-hmm. on top of all the, you know, national standards that might exist, for example, diabetes. The way of defining a diabetes patient in Mayo Clinic, H1C, you know, A1C has got to be greater than seven, but actually the National American Diabetes Association's criteria is greater than eight. So there are so many of those guidelines that's very specific to an organization. So having physician partnership, call it as close partnership with the technical teams are so important. And that's something that's a model we're trying to create within Mayo. So it's the medical and the technical expertise in place to build a digital health and AI. Right, and are you guys
0: seeing that? I mean, you know, not just with the health systems, but also even the tech providers that you work with.
3: So it depends, and I think you probably can speak from experience. With the vendors, I don't see as much of that, to be honest. I mean, I think we saw it on stage a little bit where the perfect model is to have that subject matter expertise with that engineer, with Exactly. And that happens if you're in a health setting. From a vendor perspective, I do think that I see that is not, that model is not always used to have that subject matter expertise. And now it's hard because in different areas, if you're in children's, if you're in substance use, if you're in cancer, right? It's all very particular subject matter expertise where you have to have a human there to help train the model and no and no one to tell it yes this is right or yes this is wrong so the moder- so the model can continue learning i think in healthcare it's hard because When you're looking at selling to a customer, oftentimes the customer is not the end user and the customer is most certainly not the patient. So you're three steps removed from the customer. Customer might be the CTO of a hospital, but then you have the end users who are the clinicians and then the ultimate end user who is a patient who is so far removed from the actual like building of these things. So it's really important to incorporate patients and doctors and not cmos who haven't been no offense but who haven't been on a hospital floor for 20 years incorporate those folks into your like governance structure into your committees so that you get that feedback loop
1: yeah i'll also say there are different types of physicians there are physicians who take part in developing this stuff who are much more innovation oriented Mm and then you develop it and you take it to the real world And 99.9% of physicians don't want to change their workflow. Even though you, you included physicians in designing the product, it doesn't gain the traction that you thought it yeah. should get because mm-hmm. the ones who participated are more innovation-centric. And then to add on top of it, at Mayo, which, you know, I did all of my medical training there, it's a fantasy world. Physicians who work at Mayo, the environment at Mayo, it's so different than anywhere else. I mean, a lot of people don't realize like physicians at Mayo can't wear white coats. They have to wear suits and tie (laughs) every day of the week, seven days a week. You're not allowed to wear white coats. I showed up to clinic one time. I had been on call all night at the CCU taking care of patients. I, I, I had patients waiting for me in the clinic. I threw on my suit and went in to see my first patient. And then a nurse walked in the room while I was with the patient, said, somebody's on the phone for you. I walked out. It was my program director who said, the nurses are telling me, you haven't shaved. You need to shave before you see oh, patients. Wow. Wow. Mayo is a very... <laughs> 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 Mayo is a very harsh <laughs> environment. Wow. And physician behavior, how they practice medicine, right. it's so very different. Very so you Which can, I
0: think... I mean, yeah. so- well, that,
1: that becomes a problem because if you develop it in that environment and you gain traction, it may not translate. Yeah,
0: but it speaks to, I mean, Mayo sounds very unique, <laughs> certainly, but, you know, I mean, to the problem of developing the tools that make it, you know, frictionless. I mean, every specialty is different. Every hospital is different. Every physician, yeah. their She's age, different. their, That's you know, right. their technology, comfort level is gonna be
2: different. That's so, this right. you know, it's a complex problem. Yeah, and actually, been. just to answer that, yes, Mayo's environment is very cult-like, and they're very <laughs> proud of it. Right. Like, that's that's the truth. But one thing I would speak about, you know, adoption of AI when it comes to physicians. Yes, you have a very innovative group of physicians who's passionate about technology. I think the younger generation and I'm not this is not 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 to really be biased, but I think uh, the medical training now is much more looking at advancement when it comes to informatics and AI. So that's really part of the training now versus 10 years or even 15 years ago, how medical professionals were trained. So that's number one. So there's more sure. understanding of the use of technology in medical training in, in, med- in medicine. The second one is I read an article, I can't quote which what the, what the sources. It was a very interesting article in which it was talking about AI will not replace physicians, but AI will replace physicians who do not use AI. So eventually, that's where I see AI leading is right. eventually more of the, as we move into the Gen Z world, there'll be more adoption of AI and it, it won't be an afterthought. It would be of how can technology be infused in the way yeah. I work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I don't want to take the example of Metaverse, It's really in some bad press now, but there was a nice, again, another YouTube video that Meta had published, which was talking about virtual surgical training. How can I teach medicine virtually, and how can the surgeons operate on a patient virtually? So that's really taking us to the red player, one, ready player one kind of environment where that's that's the future. That's why I yeah. see the future. But they, we're very, I'll call it, we are in an infancy state mm-hmm. when it comes to precision and preventative medicine. Yeah. We're much more advanced in the other areas of administrative and yeah. scheduling and right. triaging. As a
1: matter of fact, yeah. years ago, we invested in a surgical training using yeah. a VR company. It was at its infancy back in 2007, 18. It's still at its, it's, its
3: infancy. It's still <laughs> its a very
1: bad decision. Uh, yeah, <laughs> well,
3: and I think you bring up a good point because I think the hysteria comes around people being worried that a robot's gonna operate on me or that it's gonna replace all these jobs. We're in such a like workforce shortage anyways. I'm personally, I'm not worried about that aspect because I think healthcare will always need a human touch, right? But when you're accessing healthcare services and when you're writing down your notes and when you're sitting in the front desk and you're trying to triage and run a whole control center of where my patients going and sending nurses to each room to check, are the rooms ready? Are the rooms available? that's a lot of, that's a, like a lot of human work that shouldn't be human work. Cause that's not why these, that's not why providers got into the business of healthcare. They got into the business of healthcare to treat patients. So I really think we'll always need that human element, but it's things that automate the intake process, right? Yeah. That is a pain that I've worked in healthcare for over decades. And I still don't understand really how the system works from a patient perspective. So as, as, you know, when you get into the nitty gritty, it's kind of boring. It's not as sexy to talk about, but those are the areas where we're seeing a lot of movement.
1: And actually right now you have companies like Lean Toss, Cuventus, who are helping with hospital operations, Mm -hmm. improving OR scheduling and so forth. And I think the use case that you mentioned earlier, like applying NLP to notes, coding and so forth that is the frontier. frontier that is going to be the first applications and there is nothing wrong with that because it's going to save a lot of work improve sure. workflows and create room for patient care yeah.
0: right and that's what it you know taking out the stuff that isn't patient care right. automating the easy stuff which we talked a little bit about getting rid of the stupid stuff which i do love but you know and and that's you yeah. know the promise promise of it is to be the augmenter right so you know chat gpt we've Certainly seen a lot about it on social. Some of us have watched their children write papers with it. And some of us have experimented with it, you know. And so I want to open up the conversation because I don't think anybody's an expert in it. Except you guys, of course. But, but in terms of any questions we have, I, I, I mean, I've started to hear people's stories of, of using it. So okay. I don't know if you've used it. If you want to talk about it a little bit, yeah. each of us can kind of share a story. Yeah. I already did. My son wrote so, a paper. But you, for you guys, so tell us. I'll it, then speak then the Mayo invite. Clinic story.
2: Yes. <laughs> it's off. It's right off the press, right? CHAT GPT, since uh, late last year, what, was November 30th is when ChatGPT GPT was released. The hype around the use of CHAT GPT was huge. And believe it or not, a lot of Mayo physicians started playing with it. And what happened was, I was getting a lot of inquiries. So did my team around. Can we use it? Hey, I'm finding this very educational. There were some compliance issues too when you start using it for <laughs> a, in a medical organ, a medical you know organization. So we had to come up with a very soft policy right now to actually uh, make sure that we provide guidance when it's when you're using ChatGPT in healthcare. First, it's not a HIPAA compliant service, and you really. The, passing any information, patient-specific information to chat GPT servers is, is against the terms of use when it comes to HIPAA, that's number one. The second is it's, it's a research preview version. As we all know, we're, they're still trying to improve their models as they get more feedback. Being able, and it's, it's only dated back till 2021. It's the data, that's, the knowledge that's fed into those large language models are only goes back only till 2021, it's off the internet. So you know that anything in the internet is as credible right. it as it can be. Can so be used for Wikipedia yeah, for to, to it's yeah <laughs> it's it's Wikipedia plus plus right yeah, anything I could write on my uh, you know mm-hmm. my blog. The third was that it doesn't have any medical knowledge. It's no nothing based on medical knowledge. So it's not looking at you know UMLS. It's not looking at any knowledge or terminologies. Mm-hmm. So anything you you see in it, it's probably some literature. And, you can, and you're like, you can we use have it. a tool, we brought you that. You use the tools we gave you. Mm. <laughs> and last but not the least is um, it's so important for every organization, especially the healthcare, I'm going to speak, to come up with policies in right. use of chat GPT. It's still a very nascent field. Yes, there's a lot of promise. We can talk about n number of potential applications in use of chat GPT in healthcare. But I think we're really in this generative AI space where we're really learning the pro- we're learning what possibilities can happen, but there's no risk framework around it. There's no policies around it in an organization. So we've provided guidance to all physicians and educators at Mayo Clinic to use it. We, can't, we don't have a policy. We're still building a policy, but they've got to use it based on understanding the risks associated with it. Chat GPT in healthcare education? Absolutely. Being able to summarize your literature, if you've got questions around literature, medical literature, absolutely it can be used in terms of education, but not really in support of patient care. Right, right.
3: Can I ask the audience, raise your hand if you've used Chat GPT?
2: I can raise mine Okay, you. so
3: like <laughs> ha- a little more than half. So I have to go on the record saying I'm not speaking from AWS perspective. I'm speaking of, from my personal perspective on ChatGPT. <laughs> I've used it, right? And how I used it was I have a two-year-old and somehow we got into this routine of me making up a story about him on the farm because he he's a Brooklyn kid that loves a farm. <laughs> and after two weeks, I started running out of stories. So I went on ChatGPT and I said, tell me a story ab- about my two-year-old who lives on the farm and loves pigs. And it spit out a pretty good story and I used it. And I use that example to say, and going back to the three things I'm most excited about, administrative AI in administrative activities, AI in health equity and AI in precision medicine. Health equity, there's a national push for health literacy, right? And to get content out there that can reach the patients who don't have a medical background. Right? and getting content out that, that's in different languages. If you ask a doctor or a nurse to write some form of patient-facing material at a third grade level, it's really hard to do because you have all the acronyms, you have all that medical knowledge. It's kind of cool to think that we can think about Chat GBT and saying, hey, write this for me in a third grade level or in a second grade level. So that way we can speak to more patients that are out there to create more equitable access to healthcare services and help patients manage their own care and actually learn a little bit how to navigate the healthcare
1: world. I had prepared a few slides when I didn't know what this panel was gonna (laughs) be. It was a possibility that I needed to like give a talk. One of them was this guy who is a physician and what went on Twitter and said, look, guys, for those who say there is no use case for chat GPT and healthcare, look, I asked it to generate a letter for this patient to get this procedure. It generated the letter and why it's justified and put the references on there. And he posted it on there and people were like thumbs up and stuff. And then a few threads down, some people started asking questions, you know, I can't find the reference. Yeah, and so, so it turns out the references looked very scientific, yeah. very correct, <laughs> and they were completely made up. Yeah. So, so ChatGPT is capable of very convincing bullshit, and, <laughs> and it, looks, it looks very authentic, it looks very authoritative,
0: So what you're saying is that my son's paper was in his own voice.
1: (laughs) Well, (laughs) what I'm saying is, what I'm saying is ChatGPT cannot be used to generate unsupervised content that's sent to patients or providers looking up. Oh, I have this patient here. What is the best treatment? You don't know what's if what's it's giving you is the best possible treatment or completely made up. It's no, and actually now that clinicians and healthcare people have played with it. We have about a few weeks worth of track record, which is 50% of the time it's making things up. Yeah. Or it's giving you content that's close to what you ask, but it's not relevant. Like you yeah. might ask something about diabetes type two. It gives you information about diabetes type one. You don't know it's about diabetes type one because it's stated very authoritatively and <laughs> it's very nicely formatted. However, type two and type one are different. you know mm-hmm. one uses insulin, one doesn't, one is obesity. Yeah, yeah. so that's it cannot be used in however, what I think it could be very helpful is it can take you 50, 60 percent of the way there. It can generate the content and you can review it. If yeah. it's perfect, you make it available to patients. If it's right. not, you edit it and it saves you time.
3: Right Going back to it needs that human element yes. right to look over. Still. Still. <clears throat> AI is
2: only to aid in clinical decision making. Yes.
3: yes. You're not make decisions
2: like right. decisions. So the human feedback and the loop, human in the loop is, yeah. is yeah. you know, it's, it's important. no point.
0: Right. Awesome. Well, thank
2: you all. Thank very you much. So much. Thank,
0: you. thank you for joining us for this week's Health Impacts Digital Health Talk. Don't miss another podcast. Subscribe at digitalhealthtalks.com. And to join us at our next face-to-face event, visit HealthImpactLive.com.